You know those moments where you think, I wish I would have learned this in school? Those are the topics that we love to talk about. Join me each week as I interview experts sharing their strategies for solving problems that us young adults will face throughout our 20s and 30s. So what are you waiting for? And if you want new episodes about adulting advice every Monday, hit that follow button. I feel like I always gravitate towards stories about taking a chance. Ahmed Jabber's story about how he went above and beyond during his Seek Discomfort interview comes to mind. I don't know, I really enjoy them. They provide a much needed reminder. As I get older, I feel like I'm making more conservative choices. If that's true or not, objectively, I'm not sure I could say. I think it's important to try new things that include risk, assuming it has positive upside and you've considered how you can minimize the negative. I invited my friend Mason Burchett back on the podcast. He first appeared on The Struggle is Real on episode 30, where we discuss some of his best advice from his book, How to Make Sure You Never Get Promoted, An Antithetical Guide to Succeeding in Your Career. Aside from wanting an excuse to catch up, I invited Mason back on the show because he has made a major life-changing decision. He left his role as Director of Marketing and Development to start his own business. Knowing Mason has a similar risk tolerance as me, I asked him questions to try to understand how he came to that decision. We also talked about legacy, business principles, and my favorite part, when Mason explained why Chick-fil-A isn't a chicken company, but actually a leadership development academy. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the Star Wars lover, Braves fan, and someone I call a friend, Mason Burchett. Well, Mason, super excited to have you on the podcast. I, I was telling you before the show, you are actually my first repeat guest that I've had on that isn't an immediate family member or my girlfriend. So, so I'm super stoked for this. We actually met through podcasting. We built our relationship all through podcasting. I don't exactly remember how we got introduced. I don't know if one of us pitched one another. Was it James Aiken? Is that right? Oh, yeah, it was James Aiken. Oh, shout out to James, man. <laughs> I totally forgot about that. That was a really good recommendation on his part. I remember our first interaction together and I was like, I really like this guy. Like you and I connect well. We see life in a similar way, I think. I really enjoyed our conversation, our initial conversation. I feel like you and I could even off mic talk for hours. Like we were just playing in the same space. Uh, yeah, so yeah, we need to James some royalties. Yeah, I need to give him a shout out. I haven't talked to James in a little while, so I'll go back and say hi to him. But let's get started with some things that have changed since the last episode. So Sounds like you're a business owner now. You've grown a business. You've stepped out there. Of course, you grew the Crush It podcast or the Crush It brand in general into something even bigger than what it was then. I think it was more so a brand, a podcast, kind of a content hub. But now you have products that you're selling. You've written a book. Uh, you actually written two books. Sounds like you're working on the third book. One of your business partners has written a book as well. You got merch out there. You got a bookstore. You got tons of other templates and coaching and consulting on top of it, but you got a new project or a new business that's really starting up. You've branched out, left your job. What are you doing now? Yeah. So, you know, I've been in this, this steel industry, specifically the metal roofing manufacturing industry for most of my professional career, about nine years. And uh, I love it. Could never walk away from it. I, you know, I did leave my last position. I was an executive at a fantastic company that did metal manufacturing as well. I left that just to kind of explore my entrepreneurial spirit. And so, like you said, we had been really developing the Crush It brand and offering some courses and products with that. And I really wanted to see where we could take that. And it's doing well. We're excited about it. But I couldn't walk away from the steel industry. It's got my heart. 
and decided to to go out and and kill something and drag it back to the cave myself. And so started uh, True Metal Supply, which is going to be a, a metal roofing manufacturing company located here in Knoxville, Tennessee. Congrats. Super excited for that. I always thought you were built for entrepreneurship. So glad you you took that leap. Do you feel like it was a long time coming? Did you talk talk to me a little bit about like the decision making process and finally getting there? Yeah, you know, that's that is tough. It does now it feels like it was a long time coming. Like I feel like etched in the back of my mind. I always knew I'm gonna branch out on my own eventually. Like I'm gonna do something on my own. I'm immersed in leadership content and entrepreneur content. And all of those things are such big buzzwords now. I never wanted to be, there's a difference between being self-employed and owning a successful business, you know? And I didn't just want to be self-employed. I had a desire to have, you know, something big that I could grow and build a legacy underneath. And then so it was really just eventually having a conversation with myself and saying, am I going to do this or how long am I going to kick the can? There's really no reason not to do it now. If we're waiting for the perfect time, we're never going to do it. Let's do mm-hmm. it. So you mean being self-employed versus, you know, building a business or a legacy? I mean, you're like fantastic at making websites. So you could probably be self-employed and, you know, go out there and be a freelance website developer or designer. You sure. didn't necessarily wanted to do that and kind of get this whole lifestyle hack. You wanted to go out there and put some sweat and tears into building a business. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, the, the motivating factor behind that is we've talked about this before. I'm very legacy minded. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being self-employed. That's not what I'm saying. Or having side gigs. I've always mm-hmm. had side hustles. I've always had that stuff. But those things aren't necessarily legacy building ventures. And that's what was attractive to me was building something that is generational, long lasting, and that can really secure my legacy, you know, for decades to come. Hmm. And when you talk legacy minded, what do you what do you mean by that? Like, are you trying to build something that you could pass on to your kids? Yeah, that's right. You know, and even if it's even if they're never interested in the business, I want the business to create a life that encompasses my legacy. You know, so a lot of people, when they think about legacy, I've heard people talk about the legacy dash, you know, the dash between your birth date and your date of death on your head. And that's cool. And I, and I get all that. But to me, my, my legacy is not encompassed in my life as much as it's encompassed in my children's life and my children's children's life. You know, I'm very faith driven. And the book of Proverbs says that a, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, you know, and that's kind of how I view legacy. Sure. I can be successful and get a lot of, of money and be wealthy, but being wealthy doesn't equal having a great legacy. And it's really what you determine to do with that, what your vision is for that. And my hope is that my children, certainly my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren can look back at Grandpa Mason and see, you know, the that he cared about them. I, I care about, you know, people in my lineage that I'll never even meet. I did the ancestry thing, right? Did the DNA test. Handed over my records to the federal government. Why not? You know, <laughs> me tracks for everything I've ever done. But I did all that because I was really interested in, that's when I started getting into the legacy stuff. I was really interested in, you know, what is my heritage? There was nothing, you know, super exciting in there. I did have like a fifth great grandmother that got hung and, you know, for killing her husband or something. But, you know, my, I had never heard the name of my great, great grandfather until I looked it up 
or his father. You know, they were tenant farmers. The census said they couldn't even read or write. You know, they died with really nothing to their name, farming on somebody else's land. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. They were obviously hard workers and that's great, but I didn't even know them. You know, I had to look, I had to spit in a tube to find out who these guys were. You know what I'm saying? And my hope for legacy is that 20 years, 50 years, 150 years, it's known, you know, that Grandpa Mason was the one that decided to change his family tree. Mason, I think that actually, that's really fascinating. And I think you're getting at the fact that like, maybe let's bring it back to you. I'm guessing some people in your lineage probably did whatever they could with the opportunity that they had. And you're probably looking at the opportunity that you had, and it would be a huge miss for you not to step out, take some risk and start your own business. It seemed like you were steady and, you know, quickly growing in your role at Best Buy Metals previously, but you always, I, I wrote down, I was looking at my notes from our last conversation and I wrote down risk-taking yep. because you mentioned it in a, in a podcast as something that you're thinking a little bit more about and you have a little bit more tolerance now to take a few risks, even though it seems a little different because now you have two kids and a family to support, but you have some of these other things that you've built up that support that, that give you a little bit more surety and, and, and you know, confidence to go out and, and take some of that risk. Was risk-taking something you've been focusing on through this you know, business adventure that you're currently going on? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you asked that question because I am not a big risk taker. I am not the guy that's like, hey, this is a great idea. Let's jump out and do this. Like, I've never been that guy. I've always been slow and steady. I wrote my, the first thing I ever wrote was how to make sure you never get promoted. And it's literally like about staying planted where you're at and investing in a long-term career. And which is still something I believe in, but I've never been the guy that's just you know, jumping out on on the limb and going for it. And so I really had to confront that part of myself that is scared of risks because I still am. They still, they still terrify me. It was really a mindset (laughs) shift that I'll credit uh, the work of John Maxwell for when I really started consuming some of his content that got me changing the way that I evaluate risk. And I didn't want to evaluate risk on the potential for what I can lose. I wanted to evaluate it based on the value of what I could gain. Mm. And that really got me thinking because I was in a great spot, man. I was, you know, I was, I'm in my mid twenties, late twenties, but I was in my mid twenties and an executive at a multi-decamillion dollar company, Inc. 5000, fastest growing private company in America in its 20th year. That's virtually unheard of very successful by all intents and purposes, right? This is the kind of thing that people are like, you're an idiot. Why are you walking away from this to go explore your entrepreneurial spirit? That's stupid. I certainly had an element of that. I was like, wow, am I being stupid? Am I being greedy? You know, is this a lack of prudence for me to walk away from this? This is something that most people could only wish to have when they work their whole lives. You know, then I I considered the risk of losing everything versus value gained. And it occurred to me, you know, yeah, I'm in this great position and maybe I was given the opportunities that I've been given for this moment. You know, I don't believe in coincidences. I don't believe anything happens by chance. And you know, I really believe that I was given these opportunities as a test to see if I would be wise with the, you know, the things that were given to me and if I would manage them well. I like to think that I did. And those opened the, the doors for the opportunities that were created now that I'm pursuing. 
I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I liked your reaction video that you had with the John Maxwell speech. And I grabbed one of the quotes there and it said, if you want to be a more confident person, you have to take action. And I think that incorporates or that encompasses what you're doing right now with that business. And you're going out of limb and you're building some confidence and experimenting. And, and let's be honest, Mason, you could always go back and become an executive at, you know, whatever steel company that's out there, or not sure. even steel, you know, we don't even need a limit to that. But yeah, I think you'd be doing a disservice if you didn't explore this opportunity and see what is out there. I think you would probably have some bit of regret in the long run if if you didn't take this chance and go for it. Yeah, well, you know, I think it was Ed Milet that said people don't typically lie on their deathbed and wish they hadn't done things. They wish they had done more. That's typically what comes to your mind. And I, I don't want to have regret over, man, what would that have opportunity looked like? That's not an excuse to be stupid, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to have this great opportunity from me in front of me and, and not capitalize on that. Well, super excited that you're doing that. I know one thing I, I reached out to you ahead of time and asked, you know, what do you want to talk about? And one bullet point that you gave me was value-driven service. Yep. So what does that mean in the context of your business? This is something, uh, man, that I'm really passionate about, and it's going to be a foundational element of building this new business. We've talked about this briefly before, man. Core values are those things that get mushy. You put them on the wall and on the back of t-shirts and people start gagging. But there's, there are a few companies that, and, the, and you, you don't, they don't plastering cliched core values all over the place, but it's evident that they have values that drive their service. Do you have an uh, example? Chick-fil-A. So for example, Chick-fil-A is one of the companies I admire the most. And I was listening to one of their executives talk, former executives rather, he was kind of giving the, the secret sauce, pun intended, to their success in customer service, right? And he stated, Chick-fil-A is not in the food industry. We're not a chicken company. We are a leadership development academy that serves people, and we just sell chicken to pay for it. And that is honestly, the they have a high turnover rate. When you go through Chick-fil-A drive through it's all kids. But the vast majority of the time, you know you're going to get served well. They have a smile on their face and they're going to tell you that it was their pleasure to serve you. Like these are, these are things you know you're probably going to get when you go there. You know, they've committed to having high turnover because they have a vision for bringing in these young people, making them good, decent people with good character, with leadership training, and then turning them out into the world to do good. And that's their business model. And they sell chicken to pay for it. And to me, that's value-driven service, you know? And, you know, I anticipate ours to be a little different. I don't anticipate us having the same kind of turnover rate, you know, that Chick-fil-A has. We're not a drive-through service. But I do anticipate our service model being completely driven by values and by providing value. We want to give a unique customer service experience to every person that we, we touch, every person that we transact with. And our hope is that people walk away from us saying that was different. You know, that was a different experience than I've had somewhere else. And that we make that the expectation, you know, going forward. We want to be a, in the people business and sell metal roofing to pay for it. Mm. So do you have a specific set of values that you're thinking about or one or two that you know that you want to emulate with inside of your business? Yes. You know, integrity is one of those words that gets thrown around a lot, but it's so important. 
And that is really going to be the, the cornerstone of our value-driven service model. People want to be able to trust, they want to be able to respect, and they want to be trusted and have respect. And this touches your employees, this touches your customers, and it's not easy to get right, Justin, it's really not. And I'm certainly going to have failures in this area, but it's something I'm 100% committed to this company being viewed as a pillar of integrity in our local community, to our team members, and to our employees. You wrote the book, How to Never Get Promoted, which of course is not what it is exactly about. It's actually the opposite. I love the book. It's one, actually one of my favorite reads. I recommend it to people all Thank of you. the time. I like the quick hits. And I, I think I mentioned it in our, our first conversation too. It's really practical and kind of straightforward. But also, I think that was the intention behind it as well, because so many of these practicals are not necessarily practiced very often. One thing that I do want to pick your brain about, it wasn't really written in the book, but you have some real life experience was leaving your job gracefully. We might have some listeners that are in corporate America right now or working at nine to five, and they're either maybe considering moving to a different role or maybe something, and you know, they have a story like yours where they are ready to launch into their own business practice. What did you do in terms of leaving your job gracefully that really kind of made sure you didn't sever the relationship that you currently had? Yeah. You know, one thing, leaving a position, especially if you've been there for any length of time, can be an emotional process. That had to be hard, man. You've been, you said nine, nine years and you were 17 when you started as like kind of the bottom of the rung. And then they saw you all the way forward. And I know we talked about your cancer journey in our first conversation as well, and how supportive the executives at your company were whenever you had cancer and, and, and whatnot. So I couldn't imagine that you felt a little bit of guilt probably for leaving the company and you wanted to make sure that you did the best you could to set them up for success while you were still following your own passion and, and what you set out to do with this business. Absolutely. You know, the thing about companies is this is, I had to change the way that I view being a part of a company when you're employed. A lot of times you hear people say, you know, this isn't a company, it's a family. I think that's a really bad analogy. And I can understand, like there were people I would I'm very close to, was very close to that I worked with, and it's tempting to liken those relationships to family. I think a better description would be that it's a community. You're not going to just leave your family. That's a very odd situation. But you do leave communities and not burn bridges. You know, if you leave a family, there's a, a severed relationship. If you leave a community, you can go join another and not be cutting ties with the other community, not be burning bridges with a previous community. And that's really how I view it. You can be very close to people in a community and still keep contact with people in your previous community. And that was really, you know, kind of how I approach it. This is a community that's provided a lot of opportunity for me that I've gotten a lot of value from. And I hope that I have given equal value back to this community. Now it's time for me to leave this community and, and explore another one, you know? Like I said on the outset, it's a very emotional process. And a lot of times it can almost feel empowering because you feel like now you've got leverage to address, you know, problems that you've had or, you know, things that bugged you from four years ago. And it can be tempting to air those things out and leave with fingers flying, you know, but that's never a good idea. I never advocate burning a bridge. You never know when you might need somebody. And it's just, it's okay to be a, a decent human being. And so those are things that I try, you know, 
that I really tried to keep in, in the forefront when I was leaving was just approach it as this was a great community, got a lot of value from it, hope I provided value as well, but life is taking me here. I think that's really good thoughts. And, and just the human decency aspect that you're talking about there too, even not even thinking about the long game of, you know, oh, they might be you know, a good contact for me in the future or might do business with them in the future, or maybe I come back to this company. You just want to be a decent human being. You just don't want people to like have a sour taste in your mouth at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, there is something to be said for earning people's respect and that's hard to do these days. Nobody has a perfect experience with their employer, especially when you come to the end of your employment. There are things that you may be bitter about, that you're upset about, that you would like to address. And, you know, the thing I try to keep in mind is everyone's egocentric and they always want, it's, it's very tempting to be the victim and think, man, I would really like to tell them what I thought about this. But the truth is you probably did something similar to someone else and may not even know it. There's probably plenty of people that could have that same conversation with you. I think handling those situations with grace is a prudent decision and realizing that nobody's perfect. And sometimes some things are better left unsaid, especially if confronting it it doesn't benefit anybody. So starting to shift the conversation, I think one aspect that you've done very well through your 20s is setting yourself up pretty well in terms of personal finances. And I'm believing that you were able to act on the opportunity to start a business because you were very prudent with your financial decisions in the past. You know, if you were living paycheck to paycheck, I don't know if you would have had the flexibility to actually act on the fact that you might go out and start a business. And we don't need to disclose, but you put a significant amount of your own money into starting this business as well. And once again, you wouldn't have that capital there if it wasn't for you making some of these right decisions. I asked you my final question last time on the podcast and around, you know, what would you want to teach? And you told me personal finance and your quote was, Financial literacy handicaps more people than we realize and keeps them from their biggest hopes and dreams. I think there is so much truth to that. Is there something you want to expand on there? Yeah, I'll give a little Easter egg here. You inspired me, I guess, to write my next booklet on personal finance, and I just finished it, so hopefully it'll be on Amazon soon. Oh, come on. Tell us a little bit more then. <laughs> what's, what's the design? It's following my, uh, my satire and it's called How to Always Live Paycheck to Paycheck. <laughs> Hopefully the, the readers will enjoy that. But, you know, I talk about this that I'm going to explain right now, this principle in the book. And to me, one of the biggest detriments to personal finance is the inability to delay pleasure. I've heard this same thing from friends that I grew up with, from family. And it's the mentality of, well, I deserve that car. I I deserve this vacation. I deserve blah, blah, blah. Again, this is the everyone's egocentric. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that people don't deserve nice things. People don't deserve a good break, a good vacation. I believe that. As a matter of fact, it's my belief in that that drives my passion for delaying pleasure. And you do deserve that car. You do deserve a great vacation and you deserve to be able to afford to pay for those things the right way. And so, you know, when people are constantly, it's a self-discipline thing, Justin, when people are constantly unable to govern themselves and to, to, you know, for lack of a better term, squash their own will 
they find themselves in a spiral, a death spiral of poor financial decisions. And that leads to desperation. And when you get to desperation, you stop thinking clearly. You're, you're not able to make prudent financial decisions anymore. And this is where people fall into to payday loans. They fall into title loans. They fall into the, the, the chain reactions of borrowing from, from Peter to pay Paul. And those take years, sometimes decades to dig, dig out of. And some people never do. It's crippling to personal finance. So that, that's really one of my biggest points on personal finance. It's not a money problem. People don't have a money problem. They have a self-discipline problem. It's, it's almost never an income problem. It's almost always a discipline problem. I think when people finally realize that, they're able to change their personal finances and it changes your mindset and you realize there are things that you can do. Yeah. And I, I think to put a disclaimer on it, we're definitely not talking about some of the people that are backed in the corner, getting paid under the poverty line and just have never had the opportunity to expand their income. And as you mentioned, have never been able to get out of the cycle of paycheck to paycheck. Sure. But you are talking about a large fraction of people that are in that. But yet, if you look at the income that they have and what they're spending money on, a couple decisions could be made and life could be significantly changed. And it, it doesn't take a whole lot of redirection, I don't think, either. And as you mentioned, I think, you know, kind of eat your cake and have it too in, in this conversation. I think you can pick a couple categories that do bring you a lot of joy and excitement and spend on those and then cut mercilessly in some of these other categories that aren't bringing you a whole lot of value. I know you and your business partner, Matt, were chatting in a conversation about fast food and, and groceries, yeah. and that's a whole nother conversation as well. But if convenience food doesn't bring you a lot of joy and satisfaction, then maybe that is a place that you can cut and you can save some money. But on the same side, if you really enjoy trying out new restaurants as well, more power to you. You can go and spend in those areas, but you can't have everything out there too. You can't want the fancy clothes and the newest tech and you know try every new restaurant and all of these things if you don't have the income to support it. <laughs> that that's right. Yeah. And you know, we're I'm certainly like like you said, not bashing people that are, you know, in poverty. That's not the goal of this at all. I'm also not, it's, it's a mindset thing. I know plenty of people whose income is not where it should be. And they only make it worse by thinking, I'm never going to get out of this. So I'm going to enjoy X, Y, and Z. You know, that's not an excuse. You know, I wasn't born into money. I, you know, my half, the first half of my life, I lived in a, a single wide trailer with a hitch on the front of it, you know, on my grandparents' land. And the second half, we graduated to a double wide. So it's I, no, nobody bought me my first car. I went tens of thousands of dollars in debt as a 16 year old stupid kid financing my own car, making $9 an hour working in a sewer company. You know, like I don't have some glorious story. I wasn't given any, any shortcuts. You can, you can make a bad situation a lot worse. Justin is essentially what it comes down to. And self-discipline goes a long way. Yeah. Income's an issue. And if your income is not where it needs to be, You've got to try to find ways to supplement that. But things you can control are your will and your discipline. And it's good to start with the things you can control. Mm. I, I didn't realize that you were, you know, probably six figure or five figures in debt, you know, financing a car and whatnot at, at 16, 17 years old. When did personal finance education enter in your life? And when do you feel like you turned a, turned a corner there? In my early 20s. Yeah, I was tens of thousands of dollars in debt on vehicle loans. I had flipped 
negative equity from one vehicle loan onto another. I was doing all of the textbook stupid stuff. And shout out to Dave Ramsey. Shout out to my mom for forcing us to listen to Dave Ramsey in the car when I was a kid. You know, I looked at this and I just realized that my income was just gone every month. And I was just like, where is my money going? You know, and I picked up a copy of Financial Peace by Dave Ramsey, which if you follow me on Instagram, I give that book away a lot because it was a, a foundational book for me. Every time I find a copy, I try to pick it up and give it away to somebody. But I read that book and it was like, oh man, that's where my money's going. And so I got in this mindset of giving every dollar a name and making sure that it doesn't get misplaced and you see where your money goes. And so instead of letting it go wherever it wants to, you start telling it where to go. Even it is, you can do this with anything. I don't care if you make $10 a month, you can tell that $10 where to go. Like you have the control to tell it where to go. That's not an easy process, especially if you're in debt and you have to choose to wreck your credit to, you know, to focus on one thing and not focus on another right now. Those are hard decisions to make and strategic decisions that you have to evaluate. But it was in my early 20s, I started looking at the personal finance thing and it really became serious. Hmm. Dave Ramsey has made a huge impact on you. What are some core principles of his that, you know, you still are tried and true this really helped me. Of course, I know he's big on, on debt, maybe almost to a fault. And I, I know that's a counter argument in the personal finance. A lot of times, you know, when you're talking about paying off good debt, but I don't think it's a bad idea to get rid of debt or wipe out debt for just about anyone. I think there are business loans that are advantageous. Getting a, a home mortgage, well, it was before, but it's honestly one of the cheapest ways to borrow money, investing your money in the S&P will get you a better rate than the interest rate on most mortgages, right? I mean, it, it's, it, some things are mathematically make sense. And I think that Dave knows this. I also think he knows most people have a self-discipline problem. You know, if you give the, the devil an inch, he'll become your ruler kind of principle. And so I think that overcorrection is intentional by saying you have to eliminate all of this bad, bad, bad. And I don't think really any consumer debt's a good idea. I don't think consumer debt's beneficial in any way. Nobody ever got rich off of airline miles. Nobody ever got wealthy off of points on their credit card. Like those are just not things that, that, that get you a legacy. But yeah, he, you know, he, he did have a really big impact on me. And I think the things that did have the biggest impact were living on a budget. That was just something I wasn't familiar with. And when people hear living on a budget, they think, oh, I never get to get to have any fun. No, a budget is just math. That, that tells you what you can afford. A budget is liberating, in my opinion. If you don't have a budget, you're in bondage because your money does whatever it wants to. If you have a budget, you tell your money what to do and it liberates you to actually budget in fun, entertainment, whatever. And then you can enjoy those things because you know you plan for it. And it's not just an emotional response and you're spending money that you don't even know if you have. And so living on a budget was one of the biggest things. And then honestly, teaching me some self-discipline to be able to tell myself no was another big thing that I really took away from some of his teachings. Yeah, he's a great teacher for many. Any other personal finance content creators that you really subscribe to? This is an old book and it's so good, man. It's called The Richest Man in Babylon. You've probably seen it. It's pretty popular. But if, if you haven't read this, it's a, it's a fable and it's so good. I would highly recommend your listeners pick it up. It's an easy read and it's just raw, basic, common sense, financial principles that are built into an old story. And so it's a lot of fun to read. It's an easy read. It's not, it doesn't feel like you're just consuming a lot of data and information. 
So it's easy to get through and you walk away feeling like you've got a somewhat of a financial plan. What, what's I think name? it was George Clayson that wrote that book. Okay. Yeah. We'll link it in the show notes too, if anybody's interested. Cool. Anything you're um, changing your mind on in the personal finance space, maybe over the, the last six months to a year? And I'll give you one in deploying some money to take some risk. I mean, I, I'm luckily at a position in my life that I do have some money. I have paid my debt off. I am hitting my marks in terms of what I want to save and invest. And I am realizing that some money is well spent on at minimum, I call it personal development. You know, anything that I invest into this podcast, any business adventure that I want to go after, I just, I, I call it, I don't necessarily call it like business investments, but just personal finance because I look at it. And if I lose that money or I spend that money on something, I just want to frame it as that's a way that I'm learning and developing skill. Yeah. Anything that comes to mind for you in terms of something you might have changed your mind about? Uh, well, I, I think probably taking large risks was certainly something I changed my mind about when we started this business. My opinion on risk with money has certainly changed. Me and Matt actually did an episode at the point of this recording a while back called Waste, Spend, Invest. And we kind of talk about this. We talk about time, we talk about money, we talk about talent. And, you know, there is a difference between wasting your money, spending your money and investing your money. And that's kind of what you were just talking about. And when you're able to really categorize those things, and I think having a vision, having a, a personal mission is instrumental for being able to even do that. It gives you some guidance. And when you get those things nailed down, it helps you waste less, spend a little and invest more. Yeah, I would agree. And once again, it's probably as I've moved up in the income ladder that I've been able and made made that shift into investing not only, you know, in the stock market, but also just in myself in general. You can expedite some some of the learning process if you're not so restrictive on <laughs> some of your spending. I think actually it was quite restrictive for me on some like the podcast probably could have grown faster if I would have just spent a little bit more money on a couple things that would have helped expedite the process or just learn in a few different areas. (laughs) Is that kind of similar to you as well? Absolutely. Action equals traction. There's a, there's a, it certainly is true that you can overanalyze things and you can be a perfectionist to a fault. And that's with your finances or with anything else. You can, you can, there's a, a parable in scripture that talks about three servants and they were each given the same amount of money. It's called a talent. And one doesn't do anything with it, you know, and he buries it and keeps it safe and makes sure that nothing ever happens to it. And then another one goes and he essentially invests it in the marketplace. It comes back tenfold and he gives his master even more than he was given. And the whole point was it was foolish to to keep the one thing and not ever do anything with it. It was wise to go and do strategic things to grow the money. And again, this doesn't mean you go to Vegas and see if you can win slots. You know, this means that you, you invest in your personal education to be able to make wise decisions with, with your personal finances. If you, all you ever do is put money in a savings account, you know this, Justin, you won't even beat inflation. You know, your money, you're literally losing money by not doing something with it. And you know, that's a principle that has to be learned. No doubt, no doubt. So as we're wrapping up this conversation, I, I think a lot of people, you're, Probably very impressive. What are you, 27, 28 27. Now? Okay, 27. Hey, you can, you can still call yourself mid-20s. Get out of here. I got, I'm closer to that. I had like a midlife crisis when I turned 25 because I was like, oh God, I'm closer to 30 now than I am 20. I promise you it's not that bad. I'm going to be turning 30 next year. Well, let me know um, how it goes. 
if you hear from me after after May of next year, then you can know it's all right, but I might just croak over and die too. <laughs> but I think a lot of people would find you very impressive executive in your mid-20s, now business owner. You've, you have plenty of other business ventures too that you've started prior to what you're about to launch here as well. And then I always forget that you're also a dad. You have two kids. What are they? Six and four. Okay. I had the 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 high and low off a little bit there, but that is super impressive. How has family been through all of this process? If, is your wife pretty supportive of what's going on? What have you been thinking about there? Like what's what's going on with family life? This ties into to legacy. Legacy is not about making money, Justin. And this is why I, I invoked the verse about leaving an inheritance for your children's children. I can truly say at the end of the day, everything I do is for my family. They're my motivation, my driving factor. And I absolutely could not have done it without my amazing wife. Uh, she's been very supportive. And we decided when we were young, when we had our daughter, when I was 20 and she was 19, we decided a family was something that we wanted and we wanted a young family. And that's a big commitment, you know, especially if you've got dreams so big, they're scary like we did. But uh, it's it's a joint effort, and she has certainly blown me away. I'm not I'm not the impressive one. If you want to see someone that's impressive, then talk to my wife. See all the stuff she's put up with that's allowed me to even be on this podcast with you right now. So yeah, they're they're absolutely amazing. I love my family, and they're the reason I do everything I do. Yeah, definitely. I that kind of that saying, you know, behind every great man is probably a better better woman. <laughs> yeah, and two really loud kids. <laughs> Which amazingly, I turned on a movie and told them they better be quiet because I'm on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So I, I texted you the other day, just like I said, with a prep question for this, what's top of mind for you? And you texted me back the next day and you said, hey, sorry, I was taking some time away. I put my phone away for the whole day. Is that a habit that you're putting into practice? I'm guessing that was family time. It was. Yeah, I think you texted me on a Sunday, you know, and like I said, I'm, I'm a faith driven person and I've never been somebody that like really observed Sabbath. You know, I grew up, I grew up Baptist and, you know, you went to church on Sunday and, and you don't mow your yard and all that kind of stuff. You know, as I've grown, I've, my faith has changed. My faith journey has taken me along a long ways. And that was something I really wanted to be intentional about was taking that day to just focus on the good things that I feel like have been given to me, spend very intentional time with my family and rest. That's been really something this year that I've tried to focus on on Sundays. That's cool. Anything else? Any other habits you put in the place in terms of family life or kind of non-business life? Probably not habits put in place, but probably trying to identify some bad ones to eliminate. And I've really been focusing on my health. You know, I did have that, that run in with cancer a few years ago. But aside from that, I'm starting this business. There's going to be a lot of grunt work and I want to be physically prepared for it. Uh, so I've really been, I've been trying to be diligent about going to the gym every day, drinking a lot more water, cutting out the, the, the sugar and the energy drinks and soda and all of that stuff and prepare myself for the grunt work. Those are all have turned into good habits. Drinking, got my water with me right here. Yeah. You, know? you got to always have it, right? <laughs> always have it. That's right. Well, that's cool, Mason. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you, man. Why don't you tell people where they can connect with you? I think you got a lot of great things that my audience would like to to consume more of around the Crush It brand. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about Crush It and where they can find you? Yeah, you can go to thecrushitteam.com and that's kind of the hub for everything that's going on with, with that brand. We're on all of the social media platforms at the Crush It team. And you can also go to masonburchett.com. That's just like my link tree. And it's got links to 
to the crush it stuff, to my books, to the podcast, all that jazz is there. Yeah. I definitely highly recommend picking up your book. I haven't read you and Mark's book yet as well. I'll, I'll pick that up and, and give that a read, but I loved how to never get promoted. Really excited for the personal finance book. So once, once it's out, let me know and I, I'll pick up a copy of that too. I'm coming to Austin in a few weeks, man. Maybe we can get together. I'll bring you a copy of it. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it for sure. Let's get it on the calendar. We can talk offline and find some time for that. But Mason, you know what's coming here? Final question. I Let's revise it a little bit. But the final question is always, if you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered, what would you teach and how would you teach it? And of course, you told me personal finance last time, and I was super stoked about that. Let's assume that we've graduated from 101 and we're kind of in the 400-level personal finance class. Yep. What kind of topics, you know, would you want to cover in that space? You know, last time you told me pay off debt, you know, pick a debt and you'd pay off a debt and then start saving a little bit. What, what's some higher level personal finance things for the next group of people that are like, all right, I'm ready to take this to the next level. What would be some things you were teaching if you were, let's say, the capstone teacher in personal finance? I would really want to focus on the power of compound interest. I think when people understand the principle of compound interest, because you're talking about investing at that point, and I'm not going to single out any certain investment platform or vehicle. But when you understand the power of compound interest, I think it opens up the doors to explore different investment vehicles and actually create generational wealth. So I would certainly want to dive into compound interest to make sure that there was a good understanding of how it works and how it can work for you. Yeah. And I think your legacy box would be kind of interesting as well. I know you've put a lot of things in place to make sure you protect your family and the legacy that you are building as well. So I think that's important once you kind of get through the initial getting out of debt and getting together a savings plan and putting a budget and then eventually starting to invest as well. Now you got to start thinking about some other things to protect those investments moving forward as well. And I, I love all your thoughts on legacy box. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what's included in that in that box. Yeah, the legacy box seems morbid when you start talking about it. It's, <laughs> it's literally the when I die, open this box. The, the whole point of that is that you take responsibility for the steps that you've created, you know, the steps that you've taken in your life. And it is a structured plan to hand those things over to your surviving party, whether that be your wife, your kids or, or a trust or whatever it be to ensure that you know, I think of myself as holding a bow and arrow, right? And my kids are this arrow and I'm going to run it as far as I can. And then I'm going to let go. And hopefully they go out way farther than I could have ever gone. And that's what that legacy box ensures. It ensures that they can find everything, all of my wealth, all of my insurance, all of my business ventures. There are letters in that box that I, that they are to open on specific times in their life that I hope help them through events. And it's, it's just to ensure that that keeps going. Hmm. So you pre-read some letters and put them in the box. I did. There, yeah. There are letters that will make me cry probably if I read them, but I, I did write those, kept them in the box. Is this like graduation day, marriage, things like yep, that? Yep. All of those things. So that had to be tough to write. When did you write those? Harder. I wrote this several years ago. There's a probably a chance okay. I'll rewrite some of them, hmm. but it was a start. I wrote those near when I was going through my cancer journey. It felt like an appropriate time to actually do that. Don't wait until you get diagnosed with cancer, guys, until, you're, until you <laughs> build your legacy box. Do it while you're healthy. It's a lot less, a lot less emotional. <laughs> well, folks, Mason Burchette, thecrushitteam.com. Check out all of his stuff. Also, if you're in Knoxville and 
you need some steel, you need a metal roof, he's your man. Mason, dude, it's been a pleasure. I always love catching up with you. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm honored to have been your first technically repeat guy. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the episode. As always, I appreciate your kind words. If you want to leave us a rating and review on your podcast player right now, that would absolutely make my day. If you want to find episode show notes, our blog, and other great resources, head over to tsirpodcast.com. If you have follow-up questions, an idea for a future episode, or just want to say hi, we have a contact form on our website and those messages go straight into my inbox and I promise you, I will reply. But all right, guys, I really appreciate you tuning in. I love you all and you're not alone. Let's keep making it through our struggles together.